Greetings and welcome to this session of Grace Point Church. And I welcome Grace Point Church family as well as any of our guests who are with us here today. We are thankful that we enjoy the technology that we can gather this way, even though we all miss meeting face to face and in person. Uh, today I'm in uh, the auditorium of the Grace Point Church building and uh, it is quiet and empty, obviously. And, uh, but I can look out and at all the empty chairs and I think of where some of you normally sit and uh, I can imagine your faces and think about uh, who you are and where you're at. But wherever you are today, as we continue our study in the letter to the church at Colossae, the book of Colossians, I encourage you to get your uh, Bibles, a copy of God's word. And uh, if you take notes, a pen and some paper, and we'll uh, continue our study and our travels, our journey through this uh, short letter that the Apostle Paul wrote when he was imprisoned in Rome. Well, this is July 5th of 2020. Yesterday was uh, the United States' celebration of our Independence Day. And uh, mine was pretty quiet. Our holiday was pretty quiet. And I imagine many of yours were, not like normal. But yet, uh, we live in a time of great social unrest and difficulties along with the pandemic. And <clears throat> as always, our freedoms are threatened. And we know that and we're probably concerned about that. Obviously, we should be concerned about that. And, you know, the Apostle Paul is concerned about our spiritual freedoms. And in this letter to the church at Colossae, he lifts up the name of Christ as the preeminent one, the supreme one and the one where we place our hope. We don't place our hope in any form of government or any uh, current situation, but in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Remember the Apostle Paul was writing to believers at uh, this little church in Colossae. He has been brought a report by his co-laborer Epaphras, Timothy is with them. And Epaphras probably planted this church in Colossae over in Asia Minor, but as Paul is imprisoned in Rome, he has uh, good words for them, and then by extension and by God's protecting hand, he has brought this letter to us today in our own heart language, which we should be very thankful for. But let me pray for this day as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for the ability uh, to study your word, that we have copies of your word in our own language. What a privilege that is. And thank you for the freedom we enjoy, that uh, we can gather around your word and that we can read your word and study your word together, and may we all grow in Christ together. And to echo Paul's prayer in chapter one, I pray that each one of us would be filled with the knowledge of your will, Father, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, uh, so that we would walk in a manner worthy of, <clears throat> in all respects, to please the Lord in all respects. Lord, we pray for our country. We thank you for uh, celebrating our Independence Day. We thank you for the freedoms we do enjoy. And Lord, we do pray for our leaders and for others who are influential in our government as well as in local affairs, Lord, that they would have wisdom and seek your will. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Well, again, we're glad you're with us here today. Well, I was reading uh, about Russian composer and a pianist. Some of you may remember the conductor, Sergei Rachmaninoff. And he was once honored at a great dinner party by a fellow pianist, Arthur Rubinstein. And during the course of the evening, Rachmaninoff said he thought that the Grieg piano concerto was the greatest ever written. When Rubinstein said he had just recorded it, Rachmaninoff insisted 
on hearing it then and there. And so during the coffee time, Rubenstein put on the proofs of the record and Rachmaninoff, closing his eyes, settled down to listen to this concerto. He listened right through without saying a word. At the end of the production, he opened his eyes and said, piano out of tune. <laughs> you know, even the most beautiful music played by some of the greatest musicians won't sound right if the instruments are out of tune, right? And uh, the same can be said of any belief system. No matter how wonderful a religious teaching may appear, it's, if it's out of tune with God, it is not right. It is completely out of tune. And this was Paul's, the Apostle Paul's basic warning to his Colossian readers, to the first recipients of this letter there in Colossae in the Lycus River Valley of Asia Minor. Uh, they were being invaded by false teaching and it was propagating a false faith that was out, badly out of tune with what God had, will had revealed. And so we don't want to be anesthetized to the wonder of what God has done in revealing his truth to us and his will. And uh, we live in an age of experience and feelings, and we need to be reminded, I need to be reminded, that our experience does not determine the truth. Truth defines our experience. Now let me say that again. This is important. Our experiences do not determine what is true, but the truth defines our experiences and details those for us. And so today we're going to talk about freedom, our freedom in Christ. And uh, we are continuing through this letter to the Colossian believers and uh, the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ the exaltation and preeminence of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, if you read carefully, always brings back the point to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want a broad outline of the book of Colossians, here it is. Get your pencils ready. Here it comes. Chapters 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is describing what Jesus Christ has done. Let me say that again. 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, what Christ has done. Chapters 3 and 4, when we get there, we're going to see it's about what Christians should do. Christ has done this. This is what Christians should do, or how then should we live? In light of what Christ has done, chapters 1 and 2, then how should we live in chapters 3 and 4? Chapters 1 and 2 is the doctrinal section. Chapters 3 and 4 is the ethical section, or in other words, instructions on how to live. It's the application, if you will, of chapters 1 and 2. And so we're in the middle of, or in the end of chapter 2 here, actually, today. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 23. And another outline of chapter 2 is in verses 1 through 10, our fullness is found in Christ. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you are complete in him. Look, <clears throat> excuse me, look at verse, uh, uh, nine, excuse me, in 10, it says, and in him, speaking of Christ, you have been made complete. And also our forgiveness is in Christ. Uh, in verse, uh, let's see, 13, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And then in today, in verses 16 through 23, our freedom is in Christ. So our fullness, our, our completeness, our forgiveness, and our freedom are all found in Jesus Christ. They're not found in world systems. They're not found in the false teaching that surrounded the church at Colossae and surrounds us today. There is much out there. And so the Apostle Paul, really, in this passage today, 
If we were sitting across the table from him, he would be pounding the table because he wants us to know. Uh, in verse uh, 16, there's the beginning word in my translation copy here. It says, therefore, therefore. And of course, the old adage is, is you always want to see what it's there for. And therefore, points back to the previous context. In the context we looked at last session, verses 8 through 15, if you go through there, underline everything that Christ has done, it is powerful. It's like waves of the sea just beating on the shore. Uh, he tells us, see, in verse 8, see that no one takes you captive through empty philosophy, hollow philosophy, deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than in Christ. And then he goes on to talk about believers in Christ are in him. In verse 9, for in him we have all the fullness of deity dwell in bodily form. In him you have been made complete. In him you were also circumcised, talking about this spiritual ritual, spiritual uh, meaning of a physical ritual that was in Old Testament Israel, and yet it's the idea that we have been saved and forgiven, buried with him in baptism, raised up with him. You were made alive together with him, and he's canceled out our debt. We are forgiven. So that therefore, in verse 16, is at the beginning point that refers back to what Christ has done. Let me read the passage for us uh, in verses 16 through 23, if you'd follow along in your copy of God's Word. Verse 16 of chapter 2 of Colossians. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and the ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, excuse me, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and the teaching of men? These are matters which have to be sure to have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So the Apostle Paul is calling upon us, he's revealing, he's exposing these false teachers and their false systems, and he is determined to let us know and to warn us as believers in Jesus Christ. It's interesting, in verse 8, he warns us there of chapter 2, see to it that no one takes you captive. Verse 16, he says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge. Verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. And so he's warning against these false teachers, and he wants us to claim our freedom. And the first thing we claim our freedom from is religious rituals. Religious rituals, another word for that is legalism, verses 16 and 17. You may ask what legalism is. Of course, the Apostle Paul expounds on it in his letter to the Galatian believers quite convincingly. But legalism, basically, a definition is, is conformity to a standard for a purpose of exalting self. 
conformity to a standard for the purpose of exalting self. And of course, legalistic churches, and I know what those are like, a legalist assumes a place of authority and pushes it to extremes. And so that's what these false teachers were doing. And Paul's warning us, claim your freedom from religious rituals. Let no one act as your judge. Look again at verse 16. No one is to act as your judge or to sit in judgment of your spiritual life. You know, uh, we often think that we must perform, and Christians are good at performing, all people are, because we buy into the false equation that if I perform well and others like it and others evaluate and accept me, then my significance is based on my performance plus others' acceptance of me or evaluation of me. That is a false equation, and that's what legalism does. It tells you to perform a certain way, then I'll like you, and then you are significant or you are spiritual, is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. In my uh, senior year at university, uh, I took a studio, a a drawing class, a studio class. It was one of the requirements for my degree program. And it was a small class, eight to 10 of us, as I remember. And in one of our final classes, the professor, the instructor, had assigned us to do a certain drawing on a very large sheet of very fine drawing paper. And of course, being a poor college student, it was quite an expense to buy the paper and to spend all the time uh, drawing this uh, picture on expensive paper. And we brought it, everyone brought their uh, finished product to the class that day, that studio class. And the professor had us lay all of our, our drawings out on the floor in this studio. And then we were on the perimeter, all the students were around, and then he walked around talking about each of the drawings and critiquing them. And pretty soon I noticed he was walking on our drawings with his boots. And he would stop and he would put his toe to a certain point in the drawing and kind of rub his toe around and smear up and ruin the drawing. And he did that to all of our drawings. And uh, we were just crushed. I think most people were just crushed at how he had taken our fine artwork (laughs) and reduced it to a mess, and he made those points. But really what his point was, come to find out later, is that your performance doesn't uh, really reflect who you are. And you as an individual, you are not your artwork, in in other words. But uh, there are rituals that the false teachers were pushing on to the people at Colossae and that we are in danger of too. And look at the rest of verse 16 and 17. Beware of the reality of legalism in our lives. It says, don't let anyone act as judge in regard to what? Food or drink in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. He's talking about two things, diets, food and drink, and in respect to days, festival, new moon, and Sabbath. The false teachers had an admixture of Old Testament Jewish law, and they were pushing it in as well as the spiritualism Uh, that was false, and these false teachers were advocating obedience. If you were going to be a Christian, you had to obey these Old Testament laws to find favor with God, and it was that false equation. And so with diets and days, uh, Paul's warning these people. And what did Christ say about the Old Testament law? In Mark 7, 18 through 19, and he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? He basically declared that all foods are clean. 
All foods are clean. Romans 14, 17. <clears throat> Excuse me. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What legalism does is it robs us of our joy and it becomes just a by rote religious activity. 1 Corinthians 8, 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat or the better if we do eat. Galatians 4, 9 through 11. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you, for perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I was thinking about the cultural ap applications, and for those of you who have traveled overseas or to other cultures, uh, and I think of the issue of food, uh, when I was in Indonesia, we were with a bunch of church leaders there in, in an indigenous tribe, the Samangdang tribe, interior, and on the island of Borneo. And uh, that evening, uh, one of the men's wives had fixed in a big walk uh, these insects. You know, they were uh, deep-fried insects with wings and legs and the whole thing, and they were big. They were like, I call them katydids from down south, but they were a big beetle-like flying insect that had been seasoned and fried and uh, boy those guys were just eating them just like crazy it was like popcorn and uh, I didn't try one I was a little <laughs> not feeling really well that night I did not try one but uh, you know we we get appalled by some of these things we civilized westerners you know that behavior appalls us and if we were legalistic we would say oh they're not spiritual at all and as we uh, chomp down on crab and lobster and some of those insects that crawl around on the ocean. Uh, in fact, a missionary friend and I, we happened to have some Thuringer with us, you know, sausage. And we gave uh, our Samangdong friends a sample of the sausage and they could not stand it. And they much preferred that. So it was a cultural issue there. But the point is, the Apostle Paul is saying that this is just a shadow. Look again at uh, verse... <coughs> uh, 17, these are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You know, shadows are really pointing to the reality of what's really there. A shadow is less significant than the object which causes it. A shadow is temporary. It lasts until the object arrives in view. A shadow is inferior. It is imperfect, imperfectly resembling the object. And the law, the Old Testament law, and all of the rituals, the requirements for Israel were a picture. They were just a shadow of what the reality was to come. The Apostle Paul elsewhere says these things were temporary and inferior in Galatians chapter 3. It was a revelation of God's character. It was a representation of the coming Christ. And of course, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. The writer of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, verse 1, For the law, since it is only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Only Christ makes us perfect or complete, as he said in verse 10 of this chapter. So Christian, claim your freedom. Claim your freedom from contrived regulations. One time when I was in Chicago riding the L, if you've been to Chicago, you've probably been on the trains that go all over the town, all over the city. 
and uh, the L, uh, it's, uh, you know, it has big letters on the side, CTA, which stands for Chicago Transit Authority. Of course, the locals say that really CTA stands for crushed, trampled, and abused. But uh, I always had good experiences on the CTA, other than one time I was sitting there and the lady looked over and looked at my socks and she said, your socks do not match, young man. One is white and the other is blue. I said, on the contrary. I replied, I match my socks by thickness and by fuzziness and thread count. And, uh, uh, you know, who made up the regulation that socks have to match in color anyway, when you think about it? Uh, making up regulations that the whole world must live by is a bit contrived, right? Uh, well, claim your freedom, wear whatever socks you want to wear. Uh, more serious is the attempt by some to make us give up our freedom in Christ and conform us to contrived regulations. In verses 18 through 19, the Apostle Paul pounds his fist on the table again and proclaims, Christian, claim your freedom from contrived regulations. Look at the first part of verse 18. Let no one, let no one, there's that phrase again, keep defrauding you of your prize. Keep defrauding you of your prize. The defrauding of your prize there is declaring you unworthy, or I think the New International Version has disqualify you of your prize. What is the prize? Well, look at verse 10. And in him you have been made complete, and he's the head over all rule and authority. He's not talking about the Christian's eternal life here, but he's talking about the prize of rewards. And if we're deflected from the truth of Jesus Christ, the attitude of these false teachers would involve their sitting in judgment as to the future reward of those who refuse their doctrine. That's what false teachers do. They sit in judgment of people whom they are trying to uh, control. Paul's point was that following such teaching could lose to the very blessing of joy in our lives, the spiritual benefits of relationship to Christ who is the head. The attack was serious and it could lead to a loss of rewards for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. On, the, on, the, on this hand, it doesn't refer to loss of salvation. It refers to the failure to grasp the nature of Christian freedom. On the other hand, there could be corporate loss. I think of some churches who are just wrapped up in legalism. You know, and how it just deadens and it robs the joy of people. These contrived regulations in verse, the second part of verse 18 and verse 19, there's four marks of a false teacher here. Now, read these carefully and pay attention and note this down so you'll know what false teachers are all about. Uh, let no one keep defrauding you, verse 18 of your prize, by delighting in self abasement. That is the first one. A false teacher focuses on asceticism. They are characterized by false humility. They deny the flesh. And so there is this aspect where they're controlling. I mean, it's all right for us to be controlled in our flesh, but when someone else is trying to control our flesh, uh, especially in the issue of asceticism, so that's the first mark is delighting in self-abasement. And that's what these false teachers were doing in Colossae. And that's what they do today. And the worship of angels, the second one, the worship of angels and taking his stand on visions he has seen. There's an aspect of mysticism. They claim to have a higher knowledge, a spiritual superiority. 
You know, if you would only just uh, understand and come into the fold, then you would believe like we believe and you would gain this spiritual superiority. And it's mysticism. It's not based on the word of God. And then the third one, there's asceticism, mysticism. The third one is, of course, legalism at the last part of uh, verse 18. Inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. They are conceited. Their experience defines their spirituality. And of course, false teachers are involved in that, the legalism. And the fourth one is individualism. Look at verse 19. And not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. And of course, <clears throat> they are separated from the head. Of course, the head is Jesus Christ of the body of Christ. They are cut off from Christ and his people, and they have a defective view of Christ. He is a headless religion is what they've developed. And so that these false teachers were doing that. And whatever one experiences, the objective te uh, tests of truth must prevail. Christ, rather than our experiences, determines spiritual reality determines spiritual reality. So Christian, claim your freedom from rituals, from regulations, and also from useless restrictions. Uh, I was reading an article a long time ago about Hans the Tailor. I don't know if you know about Hans the Tailor, but in a European city, there was once a famous suit maker, Hans the Tailor. And uh, one time an influential businessman arrived in the city and he immediately needed a new suit. He went to Hans the tailor because of his reputation and requested that suit. Later, when he came in to pick up his suit, he found that one sleeve twisted one way and the other another way. One shoulder bulged out, one shoulder bulged back, and it just twisted him into a knot. And the, 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 this businessman pulled and struggled and finally wrenched and contorted and managed to make his body fit in this strange configuration of a suit. <clears throat> Not wanting to cause a scene, he thanked the tailor, paid his money, and caught the bus for his hotel. Uh, there was a passenger on the bus that stared at the businessman's odd appearance for a long time and finally said, Did Hans the tailor make that suit for you? Yes, replied the businessman. The passenger exclaimed, Amazing! I knew Hans was a great tailor, but I had no idea he could make a suit to fit so perfectly someone as deformed as you are. And you know, that's what legalism does. We take people and push and shove them until they are wrenched and contorted, and then we announce, oh, see how they fit. And that's what the false teachers were doing to the people at Colossae. And that's what false teachers seek to do to believers today around the world. <clears throat> so Christian, claim your freedom from rituals, regulations, and thirdly, from useless restrictions in verses 20 through 23. Look at verses, verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the, in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, and he goes on the list of restrictions imposed as a meaning of gaining favor with dogs, God simply do not apply to Christians. Let me put it again. Restrictions imposed as a mean of, means of gaining favor with God do not apply to Christians. Why? Because you have died with Christ and are free from the demands of legalism. Because Christ's death annulled the law's commands. Because Christ's resurrection assures us new life in him. He has detailed that time and time again in these first two chapters. 
The restrictions are man-made. Look at verses 21 and 22. These are the examples Paul uses. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These were consumables. The Greek text here is just graphic. These things would perish with use, whether you ate ham or whether you eat uh, just a vegan diet. The warning suggests that the focus was limited to this world and that which passes away. And so such things are object of human commands and teachings and contain no more sight, insight than the world than the world of which they are part of. Since the Christian's life is never ending, we have eternal life, the Christian should focus on what is left, what, is, what lasts our eternal life. And then verse 23, these restrictions are ineffective anyway. They don't gain us any, any spiritual credibility. Verse 23. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against human fleshly indulgence. They have a false appearance of spirituality. Uh, they are incapable of actually making anyone better. Uh, people caught up in legalistic systems are really still living in the flesh. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, humility, and severe bodily discipline, but they have no effect when it comes from conquering a per person's evil thoughts and desires. Only Christ can do that through the power of his Holy Spirit, applying his word to yours and my life. In our, uh, my wife, Dawn, has uh, some tomato plants, and when we plant tomato plants, not we, she, uh, either put a cage around the plant or a stick to help support the tomato plant so it bears much fruit and so it can flourish. Uh, the stake uh, or the, the cage or the stick that holds up the tomato plant, uh, they help guide it, you know, and God's word has guidance for us. It has uh, safety barriers, and we'll see that in chapters 3 and 4 as we continue on. Uh, God does have a will for our lives. And remember that these guidelines and rules, but remember that uh, the stick of the tomato plant or the cage does not contain life. Life is in the plant, not in the stick. And life is in you and the power of the Holy Spirit if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, a long time ago, uh, we had a piano in our home for many years and uh, Don and our daughters played the piano and and it always sounded fine to me, just like uh, the piano in this auditorium. It's, to me, it's a beautiful piano. It sounds great when somebody plays it. Uh, but, you know, to a trained ear, uh, our piano at home was out of tune. And so are your hearts and minds able and trained to recognize the truth claims that might be out of tune? You know, we must be discerning and compare everything and analyze everything by the word of God. The only way you're going to be able to recognize false teaching is by giving yourself to the nourishment of God's word. And you can start by reading through the book of Colossians again and just focus on chapters one and two as we've come to the end of this first section, this doctrinal section or what Christ has done and underline everything Jesus Christ has done for you. Uh, if you look at this, uh, this, this, these two chapters, it's amazing. It is just so packed full of what Christ has done. 
In light of our position in and with Christ, we're to claim our freedom from legalism, mysticism, asceticism, claim our freedom. But it's easy to become out of tune. That's why the Apostle Paul is warning these believers in Colossae about religious rituals, contrived regulations, and useless restrictions. It takes the guesswork out of what it means to be a Christian. Ritual and rules alone, however, are a poor, poor substitute for freedom we have in Christ. What's God's alternative to ineffective restrictions? What's the alternative? Well, come back next section and we'll see and talk about the doctrine of sanctification in chapter three, verses one through four. So we'll see you next time. But before you go, let me uh, give you this uh, little benediction. Now remember a benediction just isn't a ritual we go through. It's God's blessing upon you for the days ahead and it is his just, just great, uh, beautiful uh, words for you as an individual. This comes out of the book of Jude, the little letter of Jude, verse 24. Now, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. And amen. Go in God's grace.